Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xianqian, the editor in chief of Heartrhythm. Thank you for your listening to the July 2019 issue of the Heartrhythm podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes. Search for Heartrhythm podcasts. Please note that there is no space between heart and rhythm. In addition, translations of this podcast in seven other languages. Are available each month at the HeartRhythmJournal.com website. The featured article this month is an original article titled "Adaptive Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy is Associated with Decreased Risk of Incident Atrial Fibrillation Compared to Standard Biventricular Pacing" by Sue et al. from UC San Diego. An accompanying video author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Morin, can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The adaptive CRT algorithm adjusts AV timing each minute and VV timing every 16 hours according to measured cardiac intervals. This algorithm is aimed to provide appropriate BIV pacing or LV-only pacing. The authors followed 37,000 patients for 15 months. They found that adaptive CRT pacing compared to standard BIV pacing was associated with a 50% lower risk of AF in patients with both long and short PR intervals. Furthermore. A higher percentage of LV-only pacing during adaptive CRT was also associated with lower incidence of AF. Because the development of AF worsens the prognosis of heart failure, reducing the risk of AF might improve outcomes. Next up is a paper titled "Safety and of Rapid Switching from Amiodarone to Dofedilide." In atrial fibrillation patients with implantable cardioverter defibrillators, by Sharma et al. from Kansas City Heart Rhythm Institute and the Research Foundation. Current drug guidelines mandate waiting for three months prior to initiating dofedilide after stopping amiodarone. The authors studied rapid switching from amiodarone to dofedilide in hospitalized patients with atrial fibrillation and an ICD. The patients were followed for 13 months. They found that AF patients with an ICD can be switched to dofedilide only seven days after discontinuation of amiodarone, without significant arrhythmia-related complications. A prospective study will be needed to further document the safety of rapid switching from amiodarone to dofedilide. Guo et al. from UC San Francisco. Wrote the next paper titled "Patient Reported Triggers of Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation." The authors studied about 1,300 patients with symptomatic AF. The most commonly reported triggers were alcohol in 35 percent, caffeine in 28 percent, exercise in 23 percent, and lack of sleep in 21 percent. The authors conclude that the majority of patient-reported triggers are modifiable, potentially identifying accessible means to prevent and reduce AF episodes. Lifestyle modification focusing on those triggers might reduce symptomatic AF episodes. 
Next up is cardiac sympathectomy for refractory ventricular tachycardia in arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy by Assis et al. from Johns Hopkins University. The authors aim to evaluate the role of bilateral cardiac sympathetic denervation in ARVC patients with refractory VT. They had eight patients, and five of them had no recurrent VT after 1.9 years of follow-up. The authors conclude that bilateral cardiac sympathetic denervation may be an effective option for ARVC patients with refractory ventricular arrhythmias. Because those patients have very few other options, this approach may be life-saving. The following article is titled Endoscopic Evaluation of the Esophagus After Castor Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation Using Contiguous and Optimized Radiofrequency Applications by Wolf et al. from St. Jean Hospital, Bruges, Belgium. The authors recently described an ablation strategy aiming to enclose the PVs with contiguous, stable, and optimized RF applications, referred to as close PVI. They performed endoscopy in 85 of these patients nine days after PVI, showing a remarkable low incidence of 1.2% of esophageal or periesophageal injury after closed PVI. This compared favorably to the 18% instance of endoscopic evidence of esophageal injury after conventional PVI. The authors conclude that this strategy of delivering contiguous, relatively high power and short duration applications at the posterior wall is safe. This approach may significantly reduce the instance of esophageal injury during AF ablation. Next up is an article by Nakamura et al. from Vanderbilt University Medical Center titled Castor ablation of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia fibrillation in patients with and without structural heart disease. The authors reviewed data from 32 consecutive patients with recurrent polymorphic VTVF who underwent castor ablation. All 13 idiopathic VF patients underwent PVC ablation only. The remaining 19 patients with structural heart disease often showed a low voltage scar associated with PVCs or inducible sustained monomorphic VT. When present, substrate ablation targeting scar is a reasonable option to treat polymorphic VTVF even if PVCs are absent. Over 75% of the patients remained arrhythmia-free after 540 days of follow-up. The paper shows that a high success rate can be achieved in ablating polymorphic VTVF in patients with and without structural heart disease. Kawaguchi et al. from Japan, Red Cross Yokohama City Bay Hospital, wrote the following article titled Clinical Impact of an Ethanol Infusion into the Vein of Marshall on the Mitral Isthmus Area Evaluated by Atrial Electrograms Recorded Inside the Coronary Sinus. The authors studied 84 consecutive patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing mitral isthmus ablation with successful vein or martial ethanol infusion. The authors examined the coronary sinus atrial electrograms to identify the left atrial and coronary sinus myocardial components. Coronary sinus myocardial isolation is successful 
if these two components are disconnected by alcohol infusion. If not, touch of RF application was needed. Overall, vein or martial ethanol infusion combined with endocardial RF ablation created bidirectional conduction block of 93% of the patients. These findings indicate that careful assessment of atrial electrogram within the coronary sinus can predict a requirement for touch-up RF ablation in the coronary sinus. The next article is titled Evidence of Relevant Electrical Connection Between the Left Atrial Appendage and the Great Cardiac Vein During Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation by DeBias et al. from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. The authors report 488 consecutive patients undergoing castor ablation of atrial fibrillation. In 7% and 8% of the cases respectively, epicardial and endocardial ablation are needed for electrical isolation of the left atrial appendage. These findings suggest the presence of a distinct electrical connection between the great cardiac vein and the LA appendage. The great cardiac vein merges with the vein of Marshall to form the coronary sinus. Generally, the vein of Marshall was, has muscle sleeves, while the great cardiac vein does not. The findings of the present study indicate that in a small percentage of patients, electrical connections are present between the great cardiac vein and the left atrium. The clinical importance of these connections remain to be determined. Thibault et al. from the Montreal Heart Institute wrote the following article titled Dynamic Programming of Atrial Ventricular Delay Improves Electrical Synchrony in a Multicenter Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Study. The device-based algorithm dynamically adjusts AV delays to the intrinsic AV interval reduced by a programmable offset to accommodate each patient's needs. The authors studied 90 patients with intact AV conduction. They found that dynamic AV programming acutely shortens QRS duration beyond conventional CRT, particularly with patient-specific optimization. The shortened QRS duration suggests better mechanical synchrony. Whether or not the acute QRS duration shortening translates into better long-term outcomes remain to be determined. The next article is Predicting Defibrillator Benefit in Patients with Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, a Competing Risk Study, by Weber et al. from University of Basel, Switzerland. The authors studied 720 patients with a median follow-up of 7.2 years. About one-third of patients died. They developed a scoring system to predict ICD therapy and death without ICD therapy. Using competing risk models, the authors found that different factors predict ICD therapy or death without ICD therapy in CRT defibrillator patients. Using their scoring system, they were able to identify one quarter of patients with low predicted benefit from CRT defibrillator implantation. This may be important when making decisions about whether uh, to implant a CRT defibrillator or CRT pacemaker. The following article covers a very similar subject, 
and is titled Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Using Pacemakers versus Defibrillators in Patients with Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathy. The United States Experience from 2007 to 2014. It was written by Sabah et al. from the Heart and Vascular Institute, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The authors used 2007 to 14 Medicare data for this analysis. In the propensity score matched sample, the time to all cause mortality, any hospitalization, and cardiac hospitalization did not differ between matched CRT pacemaker and CRT defibrillator recipients. However, CRT pacemaker recipients had significantly lower medical costs by about $20,000. Together, the above two articles indicate that the CRT defibrillators may not be clinically beneficial for all patients with heart failure. It may be possible to use scoring system to identify those who most likely will not benefit from CRT defibrillator. This data may help physicians and the patients choose the most appropriate CRT devices for their clinical condition. O'Leary et al. from Boston Children's Hospital wrote the following article titled Differentiation of Fascicular Ventricular Fibers from Anteroceptal Accessory Pathways Using the Surface Electrocardiogram. Fascicular ventricular fibers are responsible for 1-5% to of cases of asymptomatic pre-excitation on the ECG. Unlike ventricular pre-excitation seen in WPW syndrome, fascicular ventricular fibers are not associated with sudden cardiac deaths from pre-excited atrial fibrillation. The authors retrospectively identified 24 cases of fascicular ventricular fibers and compared them with 48 consecutive patients with anteroceptal accessory pathways. Patients with anteroceptal accessory pathways had significantly higher delta wave amplitudes, shorter PR intervals, and longer QRS durations than did those with fascicular ventricular fibers. Among them, delta wave amplitude was the only independent indicator of an anteroceptal accessory pathway. These findings will be helpful in differentiating fascicular ventricular fibers with an anteroceptal pre-excitation pattern from real WPW syndrome resulting from atrial ventricular accessory pathways. The next paper is calcium calmodulin dependent protein kinase 2 causes atrial structural remodeling associated with atrial fibrillation and heart failure by Liu et al. from University of Massachusetts Medical School. The authors used a porcine AF heart failure model for this study. They found that the CAM kinase 2 levels and activity increased progressively in the early stages of AF heart failure. Inhibiting CAM kinase 2 using CAM kinase 2 inhibitory peptide preserved atrial contractile function and attenuated atrial hypertrophy, fibrosis, and apoptosis but did not affect inflammation or myolysis. These results suggest that chemokinase 2 mediates signaling pathways related to atrial contractile function and structural remodeling in atrial fibrillation. 
Chemokinase 2 inhibition using the inhibitory peptide is potentially a novel therapy for atrial fibrillation. Next up is multiple mechanisms underlie increased cardiac late sodium current by Kronke et al. from Vanderbilt University. The authors previously identified the R1193Q variant in the SCN5A gene that is common in the general population, suggesting it is not pathogenic. However, this variant can generate a large late sodium current in human embryonic kidney cells. In the present study, the authors compared the functional properties of SCN5A R1193Q variant to those of Delta KPQ, a common deletional mutation of SCN5A gene that causes type 3 long QT syndrome. They found that these two mutations consistently cause large late sodium currents in different cell types, but that the mechanism by which the late current is produced is different. This data suggests that observing a late current in an in vitro setting does not necessarily translate to high, highly pathogenic LQT3 phenotype. It is possible that the me uh, mechanistic distinction gives rise to differences in the penetrance of these SCN5A variants. Zhang et al. from Peking University First Hospital, Beijing, China, wrote the following article titled An Increase in CO2 Levels by Upregulating Late Sodium Current is Proarrhythmic in the Heart. Hypercapnia is commonly observed in disease conditions. The authors test the hypothesis that increased CO2 will augment late sodium current and contribute to arthmogenesis in rabbit hearts with reduced repolarization reserve. The results show that increased CO2 levels enhance late sodium current and are proarrhythmic factors in the heart with reduced repolarization reserve, possibly through mechanisms related to the phosphorylation of chemokinase 2 delta and NAV 1.5. These findings suggest that elevated blood CO2 levels may contribute to arrhythmogenesis. The next article is titled Intermittent High Impedance from the Lead Device Compatibility Problem by Tana Wittiwat et al. from University of Mississippi Medical Center. The authors report a series of five cases of transient high lead impedance on remote evaluation. These cases shared a common combination of a Boston Scientific Inogene Mini ICD and the Model 6935 Sprint Quadro Secure S lead by Medtronic. These cases demonstrate episodic high pacing impedance measurements associated with leads connected to devices from different manufacturers. These risks should be considered when device components from different manufacturers are used. These original articles are followed by two reviews. One was written by Maur et al. from Tel Aviv University on pulsed electrical fields for cardiac ablation and beyond. And a second was written by Woody et al. from Academic Medical Center Amsterdam 
on role of the Purkinje system in heritable arrhythmias. This month's HR's 40th anniversary viewpoint is written by Dr. Robert Meyerberg from University of Miami, and is titled "Reflections on a Career in Cardiac Electrophysiology: Parallel Pathways and Intersections." I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For High Rhythm, I'm Editor in Chief Dr. Peng Shen Chen.